With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. In the fall of 2015, we did a live event where I debated John Hodgman on whether or not hot dogs are sandwiches. From WNYC, this is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman, and we're coming to you from the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. And we sold out the Bell House packed crowd. It was really a fantastic event. At its core, a hot dog is a piece of meat between two pieces of bread. No. What? Yes. No. Yes, it is. The excitement was palpable. I walked out on the stage, and I was like... Everyone, we've got a great show for you tonight. And someone just starts screaming, it's not a sandwich. And the whole crowd starts laughing. And like, it was just raucous. That's what it was. It was raucous. This is Finding Founders. I am Samuel Donner. And that was Dan Pashman on his live event to promote his podcast, The Sporkful. After seemingly endless hard work and sacrifice, Dan finally felt the excitement, the palpable energy his audience invested into his work. He's been able to create such an enlivened community around his podcast due to the passion he has for food and high quality audio storytelling. Today, the Sporkful has evolved into something deeper than just food. Food is a vehicle Dan uses to explore science, history, culture, and economics. But if we go way back, the podcast started out as a humorous outlet for Dan to ramble on about any given food for 30 minutes. And if we go even further back to the origin of Dan's love of food, we arrive at his Jewish upbringing in a family culture centered around eating. My family was not super religious. You know, we went to temple a few times a year. My brother and I went to Hebrew school and we celebrated all the big holidays. You know, certainly I remember Passover Seders. I remember Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And I remember lox and bagels and cream cheese and brisket and all those things. Anytime that my family was getting together, the focus was always on the food. Yes, we observed the holidays, but like the main thing was like, we're all going to get together to eat. You know, and then it was always kind of like a running joke that my grandfather, my dad's father, would always eat a a lot and then spend the rest of the day or night complaining about how much he had eaten and recounting everything he had eaten. Like, you're not going to believe what I ate. First, I had a whole bagel with locks and then I had herring. And it it would always culminate with him saying, I made such a pig of myself. And that was just like the, the running family joke, especially at Jewish holidays for many years. Food was always a huge focal point in my house. My parents loved to eat. They loved to go out to restaurants. When I was a kid, every time we would travel anywhere as a family, my mom would research where we were going to eat in advance. And this was before the internet, so she would have like a folder full of magazine clippings. Reservations were made months in advance. We'd go on vacation like it was just like we're mostly just killing time until we could eat again. Yeah, I also heard that like your Friday night dinners at the the Pashman house where it was like basically a cocktail party. 
Friday night was cocktail party night. So now I'm married to my incredible wife, Janie. She grew up in a more Jewish household. They kept kosher Shabbat, which is like the Jewish Sabbath. And that starts Friday evening at sundown. And they would always have Shabbat dinner. Friday evening in my family was called cocktail hour. And we would all go in the living room. And my brother and I would get Shirley Temples and we would eat mini hot dogs dipped in ketchup. My parents would have cocktails. And it, like my brother and I still remember the schedule. Like my mom worked late Tuesday and Thursday night. So Tuesday night was cottage cheese pancake night. And Thursday night was hot dog night. And then Saturday night, usually my parents would go out and leave us with a babysitter. And we would have Stouffer's French bread pizza. So we were just a family that loved to eat. We loved to talk about food and enjoy our food. And um, I, it didn't occur to me that not everybody was like that. It's safe to say the Pashmans weren't your strictly traditional Jewish family. But that's not to say that they didn't celebrate Jewish holidays. Rosh Hashanah was a boisterous occasion filled with laughter, full bellies, and tables piled high with food. Evidently, in Dan's eyes, Rosh Hashanah was more of a celebration of food than it was a celebration of the creation of Adam and Eve. Eating was their religious act. I mean, they even had their own unofficial holidays to commemorate food, Pancake Tuesdays and Hot Dog Thursdays. But despite being raised in a minimally religious household, in school, he was singled out for his Jewish roots. We had this class, uh, it became a required class for ninth graders to take, world history, world cultures. It was like the school district decided that we should learn about cultures outside of America. I was like the only Jewish person. And we had a, a kid, there was a kid named Tarek who was Egyptian. There was a kid named Rishi who was Indian American. And we would always joke that like anytime Mr. Helwig was talking about any like Egypt or Israel or Jews or India or South Asia, and he would always turn to one of us and be like, well, Dan, you're Jewish. Tell us about this. You know, and, and it became like the running joke. I was in Model UN because I was cool. And around the same time, I was taking badminton in gym class. And I began writing an underground newsletter in high school called the Badminton Journal. This was my sort of first foray into comedy and satire. I got very into badminton in gym class. I gave all the different guys in the class who I was in competition with silly nicknames. I gave myself the nickname The Killer Jew. Why? Like, like a, a parody of a pro wrestler's name, you know, like something sort of fearsome. It was sort of inspired by those conversations about that class. I was sort of like, I let, you know, if this is going to be this thing that we're going to continue to laugh about our respective like statuses as the only one of each group, then I'm going to embrace it. And I'm going to be the killer Jew on the badminton court. And you're going to you're going to be sorry if you fuck with me. <laughs> you embraced it, but like somewhat satirically, did it become serious? I feel culturally Jewish. Religiously, I'm really more of an atheist. So going to temple and praying and all those things was not something I was ever interested in. I like Jewish culture. I love Jewish contributions to arts and culture and comedy and entertainment. To bring peace to all nations of the world. That's the stuff that I've always sort of like identified with and gravitated towards. How am I going to get out of this conversation? And that I feel some small part of. I don't like shoes. I don't like shoe stores. I don't like shoe salesmen. Temple and prayer, boring. But the cultural contributions of famed Jewish comedians like Woody Allen, Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David, that fascinated him. And in school, being the only Jewish student in his class, he felt a pressure to represent his culture, being the default representative and all. But Dan realized that being a minority also gave him power. It gave him a spotlight. So he embraced the spotlight in a rather comical way, deeming himself the killer Jew on the badminton courts. 
But what started out as a joke began to morph into something more. It became his badge of honor, his way of empowering and associating himself with the Jewish community. The killer Jew would evolve, and the next evolution would take place at Tufts University. University is a time for experimentation, for dabbling, and as a bona fide dabbler, eventually Dan would find a path that would hold his interest. I was a tour guide at Tufts. That was one thing that I did for a, for a long time, and I really enjoyed that because I liked having a captive audience. I gave one tour. It went especially well. People just seemed to be very into it. And afterwards, one of the fathers comes up to me and says, you need to go into communications. You are a great communicator. I've been working in communications for 25 years. You need to go into communications. They had this thing at Tufts called the Faculty Waits on You auction. They would do a dinner, and the faculty would wait on you. They would be the servers, and you would bid on different prizes and all raise money for charity. My friend Jake and I bid on and won four hours of airtime on 91.5 FM WMFO, the Tufts radio station. Every Thursday, 4 a.m. here at 91.5 FM WMFO. And we did it. It was just super fun. So I had these, two, these couple things floating in my head. You know, the guy said communications. That thing was really fun on the radio station. Then spring of junior year, I did study abroad. And I remember backpacking around Europe like a lot of college kids do. I was with my friend Gabe. And we were sitting outside a train station in Salisbury, England, waiting for a train. And I said, you know what? When we get back to school in the fall, I think you and I should host a radio show. So he was like, sure. Yeah, cool. Okay, whatever. I don't know how even seriously he thought I was, was being, but I was like, we, yeah, we should do this. Come back to school in the fall, I had registered for a class called Internship in Politics. And uh, back then there was no internet. So to get an internship, you actually had to go to an internship office on the campus. And they had binders full of papers for like this or that internship. And I see the binder that says Internship in Communications. And I was like, well, that, that guy from that tour did tell me to go into communications. So I pulled down that binder. I started looking through those internships. And it's like, intern at this radio station, intern, intern on this morning show. And I'm like, that sounds like so much more fun than the politics ones. So I changed classes. I said, I canceled the internship in politics. I signed up for internship in communications. I got an internship at 92.9 FM WBOS in Boston working with Robin Young. So I got that internship. Gabe and I got the show. We were new to the radio station, so the only time slot we could get was 2 a.m. to 4 a.m., Thursday night into Friday morning. But the bars all closed at 1 or 2 a.m. So, like, we would go out to the bars, and I had flyers that, that I had printed up. We would hand out the flyers to all of our friends at the bars, and then we'd say, like, go home now, and, like, you're going to order pizza, whatever you're going to do back at your dorm or in your, in your apartment, and listen to the show. Like, that was the idea. Like, everyone goes out and parties Thursday night, then you come back to your dorm, and you're going to flip on our show. After Hours with G-Money in the past. Man, that's what it was called. Societal progress takes place slowly over a period of years and decades at such a pace that at times it may not be detected at all. And I, we didn't have any kind of sound effects, and I wanted my voice to sound sort of big and booming, so I actually had a plastic megaphone that I would hold, <laughs> hold up to the microphone. <laughs> And it was like the idea, like this is like it's like the after hours party. That was the idea, and it was a ton of fun. I mean, I can't tell you how great the shows were so great, but I loved it. It was like the highlight of my week. And welcome to After Hours with G Money and the Pash Man. Impromptu traffic reports and comedic commentary. G Money and the Pash Man had it all. However, Dan wasn't just in the radio business for the sake of entertaining people in the wee hours in the morning. He did it because it gave him creative freedom. 
He controlled every aspect of a show, what music to play, what segments to run, which guests to interview. And getting this small taste of creative freedom motivated him to pursue a career in radio. Maybe one day he could have his own show with a real studio that could transcend the dorm room plastic megaphone. But his radio career didn't take off as expected. As senior year came to a close, where did you see yourself heading? My dream was to host my own radio show. That's what I was, I graduated from college saying this is what I want to do. I stayed in Boston a couple years. I continued to work for Robin Young at WBOS. So I was doing that and I was waiting tables to pay the bills, getting experience, you know, like and that was my goal. I wasn't exactly rushing towards the goal of hosting my own radio show, but like that was what I wanted to do. I kind of got burnt out on Boston. You know, I was there for six years. I loved it, but like I was kind of ready for a bigger city of cities that I thought I would want to move to. There was like Chicago and San Francisco. Chicago, my brother was there because he was still in college there. And I had a friend from Tufts who said she would move with me and be my roommate. I was like, I'm, I'm moving to Chicago. Despite moving to a new city with no job, limited funds, and few friends, Dan wasn't worried. He had a political science degree. He graduated magna cum laude from Tufts. He had radio experience. He was poised to break into the radio industry. But Dan wasn't in a rush. He knew the path to hosting his own radio show was going to be a marathon. And every job he got waiting tables or working at Radio Boston was one step closer to the finish line, becoming a radio host for his own show. But just as he was deciding the next step in his radio career, the job market plummeted. Moving to a new city and not having a job would have been not a big deal had it not been for 9-11 and then everything kind of froze. It was that morning, September 11th, I was supposed to drive back to Chicago. So my I was at Gabe, my radio college radio co-host apartment, staying over there. You know, they, they watched the Today Show in the morning, so it happened to be on. As Matt just mentioned, we have a breaking news story to tell you about. Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. It happened just a few moments ago. As soon as the pl- first plane hit, like that came on the screen, and I was kind of watching it. One of my best friends worked in one of the Twin Towers, so I was like called her and like it was straight to voicemail and I was like this is weird another one just hit the building wow so it kind of I, I kind of just kept watching it on TV so I watched I just basically sat in their apartment watching the whole thing unfold I kept thinking like I should get going I got a long drive but I was kind of like but I want to know what's going on here The second tower got hit, or the the tower started falling, and then there was also this news of this crash in Pennsylvania. It's just kind of like, at a certain point, it occurred to me that there was some sort of larger orchestrated attack happening right now, and I'm in the middle of another major city. So this doesn't seem like a very safe place for me to be, so I just was like, I'm getting out of here. So I hopped in my car, and I was like, I started driving west. You know, I just drove that whole day, just like a news radio on. I remember stopping at a couple rest stops, and it was just like, silent in the rest stop like nobody was talking at every rest stop also I was calling my friend Stacy who worked in one of the Twin Towers to try to see if she was okay and I couldn't get through to her like all the phone lines were jammed like her cell phone wasn't you know so I'm driving and driving and stopping every once in a while I can't hear from her I finally get to like the middle of Ohio and I it's nighttime now it's dark and I stop and I call Stacy 
and she picks up. And I was like, oh my God. Like, just the relief, like, just hearing her voice, like, knowing that she was okay. And then I talked to my parents, and it was actually supposed to be Stacy's engagement party that weekend. And I, I was supposed to be going back to New York for that. And I kind of just feel like I should just go back and be with my family. And then I drove out to Chicago, like, a week after 9-11 and began the process of trying to find a job. Nobody was hiring. Not only did that kind of trigger a res- or help to trigger a recession, right after 9-11 was kind of like the first month of coronavirus where everything just froze and locked up and no one was doing anything. No one was hiring. Nobody was buying. Nothing was happening because everyone was just like, we don't know what this is. We don't know what this means. We're just going to freeze. In this moment of chaos we see a softer side to Dan. Underneath all the satire and the jokes is someone who really cares, really cares about people, his friends, his community. Luckily, Dan's friend was safe, but he still felt the effects of 9-11. The economy came to a standstill and the future of Dan's career was uncertain. Eventually, I got a temp job. Some temp agency hired me. I ended up doing data entry for a while. Well, it was one month where I won employee of the month at the temp agency for my work as a data entry temp. And that was one of the more bittersweet awards I've ever won. Because <laughs> it's like getting acknowledged for doing this thing that's like painfully boring and not what you want to be doing. But you're like, I guess I'm good at it anyway. When Dan moved to Chicago, he envisioned sitting in a recording booth behind a microphone, speaking to millions of listeners. Instead, He found himself in a cubicle, muttering the dimensions of a shampoo cap to a computer screen. But I think even getting this job signified hope. Hope that the job market would recover. I hear this perpetual slight smile and optimism in his voice that seems to hint at a worldview that says it's all going to be okay. And it would be okay. I hated my work, and so working during the day was pretty bleak, but I loved Chicago. I loved the city. I had made some good friends. I was having a ton of fun there, and, you know, I kind of figured, like, I'll find something. Like, eventually I started getting antsy, and I was like, all right, like, this can't go on forever here. And I had heard that that there was going to be sort of like a radio network that was going to be kind of like the the liberal answer to conservative talk radio, and it was going to be, but also kind of fun, like Daily Show-esque. And I was like, this sounds amazing. So like, first of all, just I love the idea that it didn't exist yet. So if I could work at this place, I would be able to help create something from scratch, which is like the most exciting thing to me. Much more exciting than just like taking, getting a job that someone else had before. So I was on board with the mission and I also just figured like, you know, you're creating something from scratch like you're going to get in on the ground floor and like the, the, the thing will grow and expand and there'll be opportunities to move up. And I, of course I won't be, I won't have my own show right away, but like maybe like I'll work my ass off. I'll work as hard as I possibly can for three or five or 10 years, however long it takes. How did you have that determination? I guess I would attribute it to Juan Guzman. Catching Juan Guzman, hard-throwing right-hander. Native of Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. Who I'm sure you know was an all-star pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays in the early 90s. And um, 
When I was a kid, I had a subscription to Sports Illustrated, and I remember reading an article, a profile of him when he was sort of at his peak, and it was talking about like his crazy workout regimen, how he like worked so hard to prepare for every start. And he had this line in there along the lines of, you know, if I'm going to lose, then I want to at least know that I did everything I possibly could to win. I don't ever want to play badly or lose the game and think that there's something more I could have done. That just really stuck with me. I was like, that's how I'm going to approach my career. Dan never wanted to live with what ifs. And that's why he saw the challenges in his life as merely stepping stones towards his end goal, hosting his own radio show. And this outlook is so important to achieving anything you want in life. Challenges arise. They are inevitable. But if we work to overcome them, we become better. We become more fit to do what we want to do. These dead-end jobs were actually catalysts that pushed Dan to pursue his passion. If he didn't hate those jobs as much as he did, he may have never looked for something that he actually loved. Every roadblock is an opportunity for growth. And when a radio opportunity appeared, he was ecstatic. Ecstatic to grow and have the chance to showcase his originality, his creativity, and his hard work. This is before anyone could just start a podcast. If you wanted to host your own radio show, there were only so many radio stations in the country. You had to convince one of them. So I was just sort of like, I'm, like I don't know that I have the most talent, but I could outwork people. I was starting off coming out of college. I mean, I went to Tufts. It's a good school. Like most of my friends were all going to law school or medical school, or they were going to become consultants, which is what people back then did when they didn't know what else they wanted to do, and who just were like following the path that was expected of them. Almost it felt like they were jealous of me. They were jealous that I was doing the thing I wanted to be doing, and they wished they could be doing that. But I also sense that like getting into this kind of field, like there's a lot of young people who dream of being on the radio and like when it doesn't happen after a few years, they give up, you know, and they go to like take an office job or whatever, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I just felt like I'll outlast them. I'll outwork them. However long it takes, that's how long it takes. So long story short, I found out about the couple that was starting Air America, this sort of rich progressive donor couple, the Drobneys. They were based in Chicago. I thought Air America was going to start in Chicago. So I was like, this is perfect. I was able to get like their assistant on the phone. I just kept calling her every so often and politely but persistently being like, hey, I'm a young radio producer. What's going on with this? Is it happening? Blah, blah, blah. When can I apply? Where are the jobs going to be posted? Finally, she told me like, it's going to be in New York. We think we know who's going to be doing the hiring. We'll put you in touch. You know, and that just sort of happened through sheer persistence and just sort of bugging this woman And eventually I got a job interview and it was like December of 2003. In January, they offered me the job. In February, I moved to New York. They were launching a radio network from scratch. So almost everybody, the whole staff all started on the same day. So being in that room with all those influential people, like, how did you feel? I mean, I felt like we're going to take over the world. Like, this is going to be huge. This is going to be absolutely huge. And I cannot believe I'm here. I can't believe they hired me. I can't believe that I'm going to get to help create this thing. Like, I will, I'm going to do whatever it takes to like make this work. I mean, it was so intense. We're literally launching a whole network all on the same day. 
and it was three weeks from the time we started. And there was a lot of attention on it. I mean, Al Franken was on the cover of the New York Times Magazine the week that we launched. And I was a producer on Mark Maron's show. There were two other hosts. My job was to like read all the news and put together a big document that would summarize all the major news of the day with links and suggestions and background research on angles that different shows could pursue. Send that out to the entire network at like 3 a.m. And then the rest of the morning show crew would come in, Marin and the other producers, and we would prep the morning show. And yeah, I mean, I was working like 1 a.m. to probably 3 p.m. in the early days. It was insane. It was we were working so hard, but also like I was I was 25 years old. I was single, so I was young and full of energy, and I didn't have anyone I needed to be home for. So like all I did was work and sleep during the week, and that was like my world. Long story short, uh, it didn't last. We'll be right back after this break. I've been itching to travel, but there are two things getting in my way. Traveling is expensive, and we are in the middle of the largest pandemic the world has ever seen. But that didn't stop me from living out our travel fantasy and trying to save some money in that fantasy by calling Amtrak and saying, can I share a seat with my friend? Hello, thank you for calling Amtrak. This is Ronnie. I can help you. Hello. I was wondering if there are seats that could be shared. Seats that could be shared? Yeah, like, could I share a seat with... A, a friend. I'm trying to understand. You, you want to, you want two people to sit in one seat? There's no such thing as seat sharing. Right. So like, like my friend couldn't sit on top of me or anything like that during the ride. Uh, unfortunately, no. Your friend could not sit on top of you during the ride. No. Uh, man, I, I wish sharing a seat was as easy as sharing a podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you can share a podcast really easily. You could share uh, Finding Founders by screenshotting it or putting on Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram story. Gotcha. But I mean, they will let you sit next to each other. You know, I feel like I... It's I, just not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. Gotcha. Like, I like, mean, you guys can get pretty close to each other, you know, lean on each other, lay on each other, or stuff like that. But to sit, to sit in each other's lap, that's probably going to be an issue. But you know what's never an issue? Sharing this podcast. Take a screenshot of this episode, tag at Finding Founders Podcast, and post to the social media of your choice. Don't forget to subscribe and rate five stars. Now, back to the podcast. The first year, I would say, we spent working out the kinks and dealing with major problems. And Marin's show, our, our morning show, once it was canceled, it was sort of like... Like that was the thing I had poured my heart and soul into. After that, I sort of bounced around Air America, producing other random shows, none of which I cared very much about. Got laid off after three years. Um, I, I pretty quickly got a job at NPR, which was like amazing. You know, I, I found out about a new show being created at NPR, and then I convinced them to give me a job. So it felt like the Air America thing all over again, like creating something from scratch. So exciting. It was called The Bryant Park Project. Hi, my name's Luke Burbank. I'm one of the hosts of a new NPR morning show. It's called The Bryant Park Project. This is our little work area. Um, it's also a place where we play ping pong. And the idea was that it was going to be digital first, geared towards the younger audience, very conversational in style, not as fuddy-duddy as morning edition, typical NPR. And we just had Mike Huckabee here. He's a former governor of Arkansas. He's also running for president. I thought I'd call him out, show him who's king of the court, um, except it didn't exactly go as planned. Obviously prestigious, and I couldn't believe that they had hired me because I was like the one person who had like no experience in public radio. Right. Right. Point. Huckabee 4, Burbank 3. Oh! 
And the clouds parted. I felt like there was this one brief moment in time where people in public radio were like, let's try something crazy. Let's start a totally new show geared towards a younger audience. And let's hire this guy from a liberal talk radio station to help run it. You know, like it just felt like such a ridiculous thing, like such a big swing um, that they would give me a chance. So I was very fortunate. I was working my ass off again. It was another morning show. I got in at five o'clock in the morning and I felt like this is it. Like NPR, it's public radio. They don't cancel shows. Once you get a job in public radio, you're set for life. That's how it works. I'm going to be here for 20 years. I'm going to start off as a producer. I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can. I'll prove myself. I'll get on the air. And then, you know, in 10 years, I'll have my own show. Well, a year later, the next recession hit and the show got canceled and we all got laid off. That was devastating. Both Morning Sedition at Air America and the Brian Park Project at NPR were these two seminal jobs in my career where I worked so hard and I worked with an incredible group of people. We really had fun together. Like we really loved our work and they, everyone else on the team were like so talented. They made me work harder and do better. I learned so much and we were all so invested in trying to make these shows work. And then to have both of them get canceled was like really devastating. I really believed in them. I really felt like both of these shows, given enough time to evolve and improve, would be massive hits. It felt unfair. These executives who didn't even seem like they listened to our show and certainly didn't get what we were trying to do, canceled the shows. And I was probably angry more than anything. Dan believed in what he was doing. He believed he was doing incredible work. He was personally invested. Not only did he want to personally succeed, but he saw the creative potential of that show. Apparently, niche public radio programs are not recession-proof. Most things that are really novel and special aren't. Maybe Dan would have been more secure and better paid in a more stable profession. But he'd gladly trade job security and a few extra bucks for an endeavor that broke ground. Bryant Park took unique angles on the news. They had Mike Huckabee come on for an interview over a game of ping pong as an example. So losing a gig that cool understandably lowered Dan's spirits. But hope would soon be rekindled. I was working a couple different jobs, not loving either of them, and, and I couldn't see a path to this dream of mine of hosting my own radio show. I could tell it was towards the end at Air America. Mark Marin, who had also come back to Air America, had just started his podcast. And he was saying to me, you should start a podcast. Mine's going great for me. What the fuckaholics? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Welcome. Welcome to the show. I am here. I'm uh, and, and other friends of mine were, you know, were starting podcasts. And I felt like, well, if I start my own podcast, at least nobody can cancel it but me. You know, like I was so hurt and angry after those other shows got canceled. And I was like, I'm never going to work that hard again on something that someone else has the power to take away. If I'm going to throw myself into something the way I threw myself into at Air America and at NPR, then it's going to be something that, that I have control over deciding whether it succeeds or fails, not someone else. So I started the podcast, I started with ideas, and the first couple episodes, the first pilots were recorded at Air America in the studio at night. We snuck in there. What were the ideas that you were circling around? 
At that time, my major interests were news and politics, sports, and food. And I was like, well, the world doesn't need another guy ranting about sports. And I mean, I have plenty of opinions about politics, but I don't think any of them are especially novel. I thought, well, food, that's an area where I feel like I'm kind of quirky. Maybe this is an area where I have something to say and a perspective that stands out. The initial concept of the Sporkful was, I am just going to pick one food and I'm going to obsess about it in the most ridiculous possible detail. So like an episode would be about grilled cheese and it's almost going to be like a contest. Like how long can you talk about grilled cheese? How many tiny details of a grilled cheese can you investigate and analyze and debate? And I remember saying the more granular the detail, the better. I have here a half inch thick slab of provolone cheese. I'm gonna drop it in a nice hot buttered pan. On your far left, we have a nice big globule of burnt crispy provolone cheese. As we move to your right, you'll see the grilled cheese sandwich begins. You'll see our drilled and grilled bacon right here. So Dan, I worried for your safety a bit. You were flipping Dan had an idea, a concept stemming from his love of food, an obsessive study of food that had an almost religious fervor. This is the guy who at high holidays worshipped at the altar of challah bread and brisket. That worship was actually the secret sauce, the unique angle he needed to differentiate himself. The sporkful was unique, but more importantly, the sporkful was his. Those first few episodes, what was your opinion of them? I thought they were good. I mean, I thought we were onto something. You know, I didn't know very much. I had been a producer for, for 10 years. So I had a leg up on the average person who may just start a podcast out of nowhere. I knew how to make good audio, but I hadn't hosted anything. When I listen back now, I'm like, oh, this isn't very good. But at the time, I felt like the idea was good. I reached out to this uh, friend of mine, Mark Garrison, who I had worked with at NPR, because I felt I was like, this guy... Tonally, he's very different from me. He's a different personality from me. But he shares my obsession with food I knew from working with him. So I like the producer in me was like, we would be good together on the air. I had the idea and then I said, Mark, will you do this with me? And he said, yes. So we were kind of doing it together in the very early days. Uh, and that was great because I didn't have the confidence to host a show by myself at that time. I didn't think I could. This is like a pretty big step because you previously thought to have my own show, I have to work for 10 years under someone else. And then I can get this. What made it so fun and exciting was the control, knowing that no one can take this away from me. And I felt like I could just will it into existence. And you know, I'd worked in media for a long time, so I had a lot of friends in the world of media. So when the show launched, I e was emailing them all, telling them all about it. So within a couple episodes, Mike Pesca, who I'd worked with at NPR, he was on... I think the Slate Culture Gab Fest podcast. And at the end of the episode, they each do like a recommendation, like a cocktail chatter type thing. And he recommended this Sporkful. It's not like that got us 100,000 new listeners. It's been more of a slow and steady climb. I mean, there certainly are a few moments that you can pinpoint where our listenership jumped substantially. But as a storyteller myself, I recognize the value of turning point moments. Each one of those moments is a culmination of weeks or months or years of work. 
I learned how to promote things through my own work on other shows and develop relationships with people. And, and as I got better and learned and gained more experience, then I had the ability to pitch to really big shows. And then you see that huge spike in the numbers. But like, you know, you don't just like amble into Radio Lab. His decade as a producer taught him what makes a good host. He knew what to do. He had experience. Dan was just finally transferring that experience into something that was his. Patience is something I really admire within his story. He didn't think he was owed an immediate success. He didn't think his experience or connections made an overnight audience. No, it was just a matter of putting in the work and consistently applying that experience. No longer working under the banner of an established radio production company, he found that the possibilities were boundless. But the Sporkful was still just a side project. So the first couple years of the Sporkful, I was doing it part time. I was doing freelance work. And so I, but, but like at that point, I was like, this, the Sporkful is the future. Like everything else was just like helping to pay the bills until the Sporkful would. But then I was married. My first child was born. 10 months after the Sporkful launched. Now I'm not the 25-year-old at Air America who can just like work for a million hours a week and who cares. Now I have to make money and support my family and help with the parenting. I would get up with my daughter sometimes. She's like six months, a year old. Hi ho, Kermit the Frog here. She's watching TV. Is it cookie? Uh, no, well, my wife is still sleeping and I'm like editing this workful at 6 a.m. on a Saturday. And there was hard conversations because my wife, Janie, was like, I mean, oh, look, she was incredibly supportive, but it was also hard for her because she was working full time. She was not having as much time with our daughter as she would like. She was the one who was getting us benefits and helping to support us. And she was understandably at times was kind of like, how much longer do I have to be sort of shouldering this burden so that you can pursue your dreams? The first really big thing happened was that I got a book deal based off the podcast. Podcast was still making basically no money the first two years because back then, like almost nobody could make money off podcasts. Even big podcasts weren't making money because there were very few ad sales. Companies weren't advertising on podcasts. And that was the first thing that was like, here's real money and a sign that, like, okay, I felt like I was onto something. Here's a sign that someone else sees that. The spot at WNYC and the book deal provided two things personal validation and practical income. Without the latter, it would become difficult to support his family. He felt guilty about pursuing a goal which his wife found burdensome for her and of the kids. And the podcast wasn't bringing in any cash. It's difficult to feel that a product is successful if it isn't making money. Money is often seen as a vote that society, or at least some subsection of society, finds what you are making valuable. If you don't have that validation, you have to look for other indicators of success. And sometimes those indicators are internal, like Dan's feeling that he was making great content. But the book made Dan's internal dialogue external. He knew the world agreed with him. All this publicity launched him to the next level in podcasting. 
in the fall of 2015, we did a live event where I debated John Hodgman. This was really like back when this question was not quite so played out on whether or not hot dogs are sandwiches. From WNYC, this is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman, and we're coming to you from the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. We sold out the Bell House. It was a packed crowd. It was really a fantastic event. Mr. Pashman, stand in front of your mic. Yes. Most dictionaries say that for a food to be a sandwich, it must have two pieces of bread, but a hot dog bun is but a single piece. Looking out into that crowd, did it hit home how big this thing had become? Oh, it was amazing. People packed shoulder to shoulder. You come out, and just to walk out, I remember how excited it felt. Like, the excitement was palpable. A hot dog bun counts as a sandwich bread. It is a hinged bun, like the same bread on which you would make a meatball sub. You can sever the hinge of a meatball sub or a hot dog bun, and you do not fundamentally alter the structure. People were so into it. They were so excited for this event, and that was intoxicating. At its core, a hot dog is a piece of meat between two pieces of bread. No. What? Yes. No. Yes, no. it is. No. In, in what way is it I not? Was so, I was so with you, my friend. I walked out on the stage, and I was like, everyone, we've got a great show for you tonight, and someone just starts screaming, it's not a sandwich! And the whole crowd starts laughing, and it was just raucous. That's what it was. It was raucous. Dan was part of the event, his event. He looked out to a crowd of people that were all there for him. I think it's one thing to look at numbers on a screen, analytics on a browser, But when you see faces, hear voices, palpably taste the excitement in a room because of something you created, something you brought into the world, that's a beautiful thing. And Dan could have been self-aggrandizing at this moment. He could have artificially inserted himself or egotistically basked in the limelight. But Dan took his ego out of the equation. Without ego, he let his guest, John Hodgman, shine like a good host should. One of the really nice compliments I got was like from one of the executives at WNYC who was there and she came up and she was like, you remind me of Johnny Carson. You make your guests look great. You let your guests shine. And I really appreciated that compliment because to me, that's the most gratifying thing about hosting the show when it's really doing well. I really only care about the show being good. I think of myself more like a point guard on a basketball team. Like, I'm not the guy who needs... I don't care about leading the team in scoring. I want to lead the team in assists. It's my job to, like, run the offense and set everyone else up for success. And so I feel like my success is measured by wins and losses, not by how many points I score. And that compliment that night sort of, like, drove that home to me. That, like, oh, like, I don't think that I'm, like, some kind of, like, great compelling personality like I'm never like I'm never gonna be like a huge star I think of it more like as a facilitator like I'm there I'm doing stuff but I don't care about being the star Dan had waited years to go from behind the scenes as a producer to in front of the mic as a host and I think as a host he has an interesting agenda it's not about him it's about creating a space for the guest to take center stage creating a forum for authentic storytelling and conversation. Through hosting, he learned just how interesting other people can be. 
in 2017, you got a Webby Award. You became the number one food podcast and Apple podcast. How did everything lead towards that? At first, WNYC, I wanted the show to kind of maintain its core ethos, um, just like obsessing about food in ridiculous detail. But I was starting to move towards like, yeah, but like it's kind of fun when you can do that and it reveals something about people. Around this time, I was getting tired of that shtick. I, you know, a lot of other new podcasts were launching and a lot of the shows were getting a lot of attention were a lot more serious and thoughtful and had more depth and they were just more more personal, more emotional. And I was just feeling like if my show is going to compete with those, to keep, if this show is going to keep growing, like I, I need this show to have more depth to it. It has to hook people deeper. It can't just be fun and silly. You know, th- then, you know, you get started to get into like 20... 20- 16 and Trump is coming into the picture and you know in media there are more and more conversations about the country's becoming more diverse diverse voices aren't getting the attention that they deserve and so I started thinking about all those things how can I do better at that you know and also just like like is this an opportunity to have provocative conversations Dan had evolved from debating the categorization of hot dogs to discussing topics like race and identity. The sporkful couldn't just be about food, fun facts, and facetious arguments, especially in 2016. He seized a tumultuous historical moment to celebrate diversity and open dialogue on sensitive subjects. He needed to explore the person and the culture behind what's on the plate. So what is the Sporkful today and where are you going? In the spring of 2016, we launched Other People's Food, which was our first big series on race and culture and food. This week on the Sporkful, we're kicking off a series of episodes called Other People's Food. How do our assumptions about people affect our assumptions about their food? That feeds back into whether we consider it cheap ethnic food or we are considering... You know, I needed to go through my own journey and to develop confidence as a host because part of our coverage of race and food, which we've now become well known for, involved me putting myself out there and sometimes being made to look foolish or clueless. So I had to get to a point of being like, I'm okay with that. So that was a huge turning point. And then from there... The show has just tried to, I've just tried to keep going in that direction of like deeper, more thoughtful, smarter. The episodes that get the most attention that people like the most are not the ones that have the biggest celebrity guests. The episodes now that, and for a number of years, that get the most attention are the ones that are centered on a really interesting and provocative question. That question can be, what happens when a white chef cooks Mexican food? Or what are white people who use the word plantation and food branding really trying to communicate? Healthy indulgence is soup plantation. The one place you can discover... Or it can be how does the sound of a potato chip crunch affect the way it tastes? Uh, you know, it can be sciency, or how is this thing developed? Or, you know, um, we've done collaborations with Planet Money. Like, how does the spacing between tables and restaurants affect its economic forecast? And what's the, what goes into that calculation? Turns out it's really complicated and really vital. We did this whole, like, year-long story about that. The podcast matured. 
Dan realized that people crave compelling human stories just as much as they did delicious food. That's the key to a successful podcast. Dan found what whetted people's appetite, and it wasn't solely food. Food and Dan play a similar role. They're both there just to direct attention towards more engaging subjects, the guests, the conversation. Dan uses food as a medium to talk about the tough topics, the consequential conversations, and he's learned quite a bit from his guests. And we can learn quite a bit from him too. If I had been more experienced as a radio host earlier, the Sporkful would have gotten better earlier. And we would have kind of been ahead of the podcast bump even more. And we would have more listeners now than we do. That being said, you can always say that. People who are really, really successful are people for whom it's never enough. You need to have an unquenchable level of ambition to be extremely successful. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with my ambition, which is like, you know, like you need it to, to be successful, but it makes it hard to ever feel successful. But then you stop and you look from where you've come and you're like, oh, wow, I've done a lot and this is going really well. It's important to remember that. It's important to appreciate what you've accomplished and feel good about it. There's a balance between feeling good about what you've accomplished and also wanting more. Sometimes an A- minus is okay. Shooting for the A+, just gets you diminishing returns until you barely have enough energy left to pass in your personal life. I actually had a conversation a few hours before recording this with an entrepreneur named Andrew Warner. We discussed ambition and asked the question, does ambition in its truest form sacrifice happiness? Our conclusion was that in many ways, it does. Of course, it's possible to strike a balance, but especially when you're building, when you're trying to create some sort of legacy, when you're trying to pursue entrepreneurship or realize your vision, you might put happiness on hold. But Dan tells a different story. You can still be great at what you do. You can still love it, but you also don't have to give all of yourself to it. You can have a family. You can have friendships. Striking out on your own, becoming an entrepreneur doesn't have to be all-encompassing. I understand that people are attracted to stories about the glory of the sacrifice, but those stories don't have happy, content endings. They end just wanting more. For Dan, it's about the simplicity of telling stories about good food, good people, and interesting conversations. At the end of the day, it's a question. What do you want? See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore, Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. 
Sahesh Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lynn, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan O'Nissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.